Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. Thank you very much, Steve, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks for having me. Great. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the work that you've been doing and in particular uh, your most recent book, The Sustainable City. Um, a good place to start, I guess, would be just maybe to introduce yourself a little bit to, the, to, to listeners and talk a little bit about what you do and what you're interested in at the moment. Okay. Well, I'm a professor at Columbia University uh, and I... Uh, direct uh, two master's programs, one in sustainability management and the other in environmental science and policy. Uh, I also run a research program on sustainability policy and management. From 2006 until about a month ago, I was executive director of Columbia's Earth Institute, which is our largest research institute here at the university. It's about 750 people, uh, all devoted to various aspects of sustainability science, policy, and management. And uh, the work that I've been doing most recently uh, has been on uh, how do you uh, make this transition to uh, the renewable resource-based economy, uh, how far have we gotten, uh, and as a, basically as a management professor, I think a lot about how organizations make that happen. Right, right. And so just maybe a, a little bit of an overview, where would you situate where we are today in terms of the evolution well, you know, I have to take a, a fairly long-term perspective because uh, I started studying environmental policy in the fall of 1975 as a first-year graduate student. I walked into an environmental politics and policy class, uh, and at that point, uh, this was a fringe issue. People uh, thought it was kind of cute, a little silly. Nobody really paid much attention to it. Uh, if you then move ahead, EPA in the United States at that point was five years old. And if you move ahead to uh, 2018, uh, it's at the center of our consciousness. Uh, when foreign uh, leaders uh, visit each other, they talk about security and trade, and they talk about uh, sustainability issues, climate change, resources, uh, and a variety of other issues like that. And so uh, I see us making progress. Um, I think people sometimes uh, don't really appreciate how far we've come. Uh, when the U.S. EPA was started in 1970, uh, this country had not yet decoupled the growth of our GDP from the absolute growth of pollution. Uh, by 1980, that had been decoupled, and, and in fact, uh, we continue to grow our economy while reducing the absolute load of pollution. We need to accelerate that, and we need to uh, really use technology uh, to put... Uh, the damage of technology under better control than we have, uh, but we're doing a lot better than we used to. Right, that's interesting. You mentioned this uh, decoupling and slowing down, I guess, or less carbon intensity. Um, do you worry about growth, economic growth? I, w I worry about it, particularly in the developing world. But I think that these are there are stages of development, and I think once you get to the point where you feel that your family has enough to eat and you have a roof over your head, then you start thinking about wellness and quality of life and the issues that are of concern in the developed world. And very quickly, that 
brings into play, well, what am I drinking and what am I eating and what am I breathing? And uh, that starts to create an awareness. Once you do that, then people start thinking about climate change and biodiversity and these deeper and more profound issues that uh, of global environmental change uh, that we have to deal with. So, uh, you know, I, I think obviously we could accelerate the pace, uh, but I think in, in this world it's always a matter of two steps forward and one step back. Yes, well, it's quite optimistic uh, in, in some respects in you talking about the United States because I guess they have, you know, reached that, the, to some extent, a pinnacle of, of uh, a developed economy, whatever that might mean. And yet, like, it's, it's very polarized, the public, you know, perspective on these questions, particularly in terms of climate change. And it's not really clear whether or not, you know, or is it that economic growth and consumption is is still you know a very important driver of not just the economy but with you know people's lifestyles? I think it's very important to separate the kind of lunatic that's running the country here from and some of his uh, you know people from the general view of environment in the country. And certainly there are. Uh, you know, Americans don't like people telling them what to do, so there's always an anti-regulation impulse. On the other hand, uh, you know, if you really probe at people's attitudes toward uh, different kinds of pollution and, and whether they think government should be preventing it, uh, there's a, a very deep, there continues to be a deep level of support. So, you know, and, and I think that the nature of economic development uh, is changing. Uh, the U.S., uh, 80% of our GDP is in the service sector right now. And so you hear a lot of noise about trade and tariffs and all the things that uh, the president and his people think about, but they're basically stuck in the 1970s. I mean, they essentially think uh, national security comes from being able to manufacture tanks like and airplanes like we did during World War II. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a very different world. Uh, than the one they think they're in. So, you know, I, I think that it's a problem in that people's awareness and understanding, including the president here, uh, is just not connected to reality. Uh, but I think that in the rest of the world, there's there's an appreciation of it. Now, there is fierce pressure uh, to develop economically, uh, and I think people see the Western lifestyle and the you know or the lifestyle in Japan in, in wealthy parts of the world, and they want it. And then the question is, how do we deliver that while paying enough attention not to destroy the planet? And I think we can do it. I think we've actually demonstrated the capacity to do it. And I think we have to keep working at it. Uh, the, the critical issue at this point, particularly because of, of climate change, is renewable energy and, and storage of renewable energy. And if you look at the technological advances just in the last decade, they've been, uh, they've been pretty profound. Now, we don't yet have that transformative technology so that people switch, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, I used to ask my students, uh, how many of you have landlines in your apartments and in your dorm room? And none of them do. And now recently I've been asking them, how many of you are connected to cable television? And none of them do. <laughs> and so th we've seen transformative technologies in those areas. We haven't seen it yet, particularly in energy storage, but we're getting there. Yes, and the technologies, yes. those technologies are improving. And when we get to that point, uh, you know, it's going to get to the point where someone's going to say, should I put a solar uh, installation in my home or should I connect to the grid? 
And in the developed world where, you know, there'll be a choice. The developing world where there isn't a grid in some places, they'll go right. I think they're going to leapfrog, and I think that's going to make a huge difference. Yes. So I think those things are happening. I think the other thing that's happening that that people aren't paying a lot of attention to is automation. Uh, You know, people have moved from the countryside into cities uh, originally for manufacturing jobs because the agricultural jobs have been disappearing, and now the manufacturing jobs are disappearing. And so we're moving into uh, uh, yet another kind of uh, world of economic life, and we're seeing it with the changes in land use and in occupations, and, and that's a lot of the impulse behind the sustainable city. Yes, yes. I'd like to talk to, to you about the sustainable city. I just wonder before we go on to that, what would you say are the things that worry you most? Um, are, are there a few things that particularly are on your mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I mean, climate change, we actually know how to solve. So, so of all the global problems we have, uh, believe it or not, that's the most straightforward one. We get to renewable energy, we figure out uh, how to store renewable energy better. Uh, we can make a serious dent in in global warming. Uh, the the two things we're not as good at at this point is protecting biodiversity, uh, and because we don't fully understand those webs, and also toxics uh, in our environment uh, because we don't understand their persistence as well as we need to. Uh, those are problems that are persistent and we don't fully understand yet. Uh, climate change, uh, I actually think. Uh, you know, it's a straightforward physical problem, and uh, it's really just a question of developing the technology and then the political will to use it. But frankly, if the technology gets cheap enough, uh, it won't be an issue. Uh, you know, the, sometimes I compare it to you know, New York City at the beginning of the 20th century. Our biggest environmental problem was horse manure. Uh, we were knee deep in it, and this uh, got displaced by our subway and by the internal combustion engine. So we're 100 years from then, and so now we've got to displace this internal combustion engine with a better and cheaper technology. I think that's going to be uh, the electric vehicle, and then we have to power that electric vehicle with renewable energy. Uh, that will uh, that will do a lot uh, on climate change, but that doesn't do much about all the plastics floating in the ocean or the toxics or uh, some of the things we're doing to uh, our scarce uh, uh, ecosystems that we really need to be protecting. Yes, yes, myriad and interlinked uh, challenges. Um, now, the sustainable city. I, I was. I just saw a couple of days ago that they uh, some research they did about the the scale of urban life, and they, as I understand it, they discovered that the levels of urbanization in Asia and Africa were twice the levels that they expected. So they're saying now that like ninety or eighty or ninety percent urban yeah and, no, and, I, 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 yeah. I think that's really what we're going to see in the in as the century goes on the momentum behind urbanization is growing uh, and you know if if that results in shanty towns and inadequate infrastructure then you've got huge problems if on the other hand that consolidation results in uh, the creation of enough economic wealth and surplus to create the systems that will uh, recycle our, you know, our food waste and and recycle the rest of our garbage and uh, cr- create a closed system of production, consumption, and waste. Uh, then, I, then I think we uh, we have the potential of uh, protecting the, you know, the ecosystems that we need to protect. 
And part of it is making sure that industrial agriculture also gets under uh, more, more tight regulatory control. And that's going to be another challenge that we have to face. Yes. So why cities? What, what, what got you interested in cities? Well, part of it is, you know, I, I, I mean, I've lived in New York City most of my life, and I've seen the transformation of New York from a manufacturing city and a port city to a city where we make nothing and we ship nothing. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure people fully understand. The city almost went broke in the 1970s because we're in the midst of that transition from the manufacturing industrial economy that was here to the service economy that's here today. At the end of World War II, almost half of the city's GDP was in clothing manufacturing. Last year, it was 1%. Uh, in 1900, the U.S., 40% of the population was involved in agriculture. Uh, last year, it was 1.2%. So the nature of work, the nature of economic life is changing. When I ran the Earth Institute, I had four full-time events managers. That's a profession that didn't exist 25 years ago. We had people involved in web design and social media, uh, again, professions that didn't exist before. Uh, in New York City, uh, we have a million college and graduate students, a million uh, elementary school students and high school students in the public system. Uh, and that doesn't include the private or parochial system. So what are people doing with their time? Uh, where we used to make uh, clothing, now there are boutiques and art galleries uh, and cafes. Um, so the nature of urban life is changing. People are gravitating to cities because they, you know, people are we're social creatures, and the nature of work is changing. Uh, it used to be that what people spent their time doing was food, clothing, and shelter, and that's what most of the economic life centered around. Uh, that's becoming a smaller and smaller proportion of what people spend their time uh, working on. So, th th so the question is then, how do we create cities that are that are pleasant, that also connect people enough to nature so they understand why they need to preserve it, and uh, and provide for uh, a high quality of life? I mean, part of the reason why cities have pushed for sustainability. Uh, is in fact cities are in a global competition for people and commerce. And so if I get off the airplane in Mexico City or in Beijing and the air is orange, I'm not bringing my business there. And so the environment becomes not a frill, it becomes a necessity. Um, and so the issues of sustainability become integrated into uh, economic development itself. And I think that's part of what we're, we're seeing. Right, right. Just in that last example, don't, don't you worry that large companies would, in, in China, for example, you know, they know they're going to get lower costs because there are issues that haven't been dealt with, shall we say, and the, so the companies haven't had to pay, you know, and, and the profits are higher and the costs are lower and they think, well, actually, you know, it's not our employees and things and they just think, well, actually, we're getting good products at good prices. Um, I, I'm not so concerned about, you know, what the lifestyle and the conditions are of the workers in, you know, various different plants in China. Right. And so then uh, I open up a factory in Kentucky, which is 90% automated. I don't need your people. Uh, and I underprice you and, and have a higher level of quality. In other words, the, the, we're, we're still thinking about manufacturing as the major uh, source of employment that it was, but is no longer and is going to be less, you know, we're in the brain-based economy. So what 
if you go to a factory, what you see is people in control rooms operating computers and machinery. <laughs> and that requires a higher level of education and skill. And, you know, you're going to be competing for those people to run your factory. It's not, you know, you're not going to have people's muscles and manual labor running things. Now, again, we're not there yet. There's still plenty of sweatshops and plenty of exploitation of people in factories. But if you look at the broad sweep of economic history, uh, technology continues to displace labor. And so uh, particularly labor that is, you know, what we would call manual labor. And so you have more and more people involved in design and in algorithms and in, you know, uh, sort of higher levels of communication. And more and more labor is involved in those kinds of tasks. And people's attention and, and is is more devoted to things that we would have considered complete luxuries. Uh, you know, I have uh, I, I I I went to the, my doctor for my annual physical, and she sent me to a physical therapist for, uh, uh, and I'm in this this facility with. 20 physical therapists and 30 people all doing stretches in a, you know, in a treatment that didn't exist 25 years ago. Yes, so, yes, yes. So the, yep. the nature of economic life, what we're spending our time doing, uh, and, and how resource consumptive it was or is. You know, 20 years ago, you used to go to Blockbuster Video here and pick up, uh, uh, you know, a cassette, and then you, eventually it was a disc. And now all that shipping, all that plastic is gone because you just stream it into your Netflix. So the resource consumption, uh, you know, I'm still absorbing those ideas and that information uh, and that entertainment, but I'm not physically consuming anything other than a little bit of energy. And again, when that becomes based on renewable energy, uh, the environmental impact becomes lower. Yes, and I think yes. we're we're beginning to see that uh, starting. We're only at the beginning of it. In some places, it hasn't begun, but you can see where it's heading. Yes, and and so, what is the potential of the sustainable city, and what do you think are a few hallmarks of that that we already can see, and and that make you you know optimistic for the potential? Well, one thing is the beginning of the sharing economy. Um, so automobile ownership in the developed world, not in the developing world, because it's still a status symbol in India uh, and in China, but young New Yorkers, uh, would they want to get from place to place, but they don't necessarily have to show off their fancy car doing it. They just want to get from place to place. And so you see the explosion of car sharing and bike sharing and things of that sort. Uh, you also see, uh, you know, some of that with, you know, companies like Airbnb, which, I mean, all of these companies have problems in that we haven't figured out how to regulate them yet, so I don't want to dismiss that. But the impulse is I don't necessarily need to consume in the way that we used to. There's a company in New York called Rent the Runway. Instead of buying a $1,000 uh, ball gown for a wedding, a woman can rent it for $50. Uh, or she can rent her professional clothes uh, for $150 a month, and three or four outfits come every week that she can wear. Uh, instead of having a closet full of clothing that you then discard, you have a closet with much less clothing, and you are sharing your clothing with a bunch of other people. These aspects of consumption are different than what we had in the 1950s and 60s and 70s where the more stuff you had, the more important it was. And in fact, 
shopping itself was a recreational activity, and we're seeing people, you know, being less interested in in shopping as a social activity, going to the shopping mall here in America. People shop online, um, or they don't shop at all. And so I think we're beginning to see uh, some changes in, in consumptive behavior here. Yes, yes. Um, and what about the governance of the city? Um, to what extent is, I mean, you're talking about individual behavior here. Some of this is also right. generational, I guess, as well, change. And, you, 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 right. you know, we've seen technology and you, you mentioned as well. Uh, how important is, you know, certainly in the UK, we've had an increasing number of mayors. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about uh, governance and, and, and what, what does good governance, good sustainable driven governance or governance that's got sustainability at its heart develop? Well, you need a lot of public-private partnership. You need advanced infrastructure and people, and it has to be paid for. So, uh, you know, in, again, I'll talk about my home city. We have a water system that was built uh, 100 years ago that's magnificent, and we're very fortunate that the people here thought ahead. Of course, at the same time, they were destroying all the groundwater, so they knew they had to go north of the city for their water. They built the mass transit system. In the 1980s, we started to really build sewage treatment. Um, and so, uh, and now we're beginning to work on food waste. Uh, so uh, we're, the city has uh, a contract with an anaerobic digester facility that takes food waste. Now it's about a half million people, again, only out of 8.5 million, uh, who in their apartments can separate their food waste, the food waste, and goes to a facility that turns it back into fertilizer uh, and into natural gas. We need, to, we need to invest in that. There needs to be community-based understanding of this, and, and it can't, we can't just set up neighborhoods to take everybody's garbage. It has to be a, a shared set of responsibility, and that requires a, a certain amount of, of decentralized uh, management of these cities uh, where the cities have a fair amount of authority. Some places are better set up than others for that. We've been working in China. Uh, where mayors traditionally were only uh, uh, rewarded by the party based on the growth of GDP. So we've worked with the China Center for International Economic Exchange, and we've been setting up with them uh, sustainability indicators. So now local mayors are also being judged for uh, a, a range of quality of life issues, and some of them are environmental issues, and GDP growth. And so I think we're going to need to see more of those kinds of, of changes uh, and sustainability plans. We, you know, one of the things about bringing all these people into cities is there has to be more public space, and the public space has to be exciting and interesting, uh, and has to draw people out of their homes. And that's uh, another important part of the sustainable city. Right. Now you talk about these. That's very interesting. That you talk about the private-public partnerships. Um, how, how are they, they they evolving? In the UK, we haven't had the best of. Uh, <laughs> history yeah. with these the environment is replete with with examples of hospitals and schools that have you know these uh, inflexible contracts which have turned out to be right. very costly and you know i think many people are wary of those what's this happening in in, in america and new york at least with respect to these kind of partnerships well we've had our share of disasters here too and essentially it's it's a bad deal for the public sector the public sector has to stay in charge so the, one of the better arrangements I could point to is uh, Central Park in New York City, which the Central Park Conservancy has been managing, but the contract is controlled by the Parks Department. And if the Conservancy wants to do something, they have to be approved by the government. Uh, same thing is true of the High Line Park. Uh, 
which is run by Friends of the High Line. So it, the key is that the people who are contracted have to understand that, that they're not independent, that they work for the public. And the public sector has to be willing to assert its authority. If it's an unequal partnership, it's not really a partnership. So the public sector has to control the policy and has to control the direction. And uh, where you have a successful public-private partnership, that happens. An unsuccessful one, uh, usually the private sector gains the upper hand, and uh, you know it ends up being uh, an unbalanced partnership. So you need both. Uh, we've had problems. I mean, you know, ironically, New York City's subway system uh, was developed by the private sector under franchise uh, by the government. The government regulated them into bankruptcy by insisting on a nickel fare, five-cent fare. Eventually, the government had to take it over. Uh, and so that was a partnership that collapsed. So you see all kinds of partnerships, and uh, I think that's, that's part, of, uh, part of the issue is making sure that they're done well, and a lot of them aren't. Yes, yes. And you mentioned at the beginning as well the, 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 the distinction between, you know, cities that work well and, you know, what we've seen in, in parts of the global south, you know, these slums and, you know, growing, growing uh, numbers of slums and extent, extent, extensive slums. Um, h- how do you think about that? I think you need public intervention. I mean, I think you need to have uh, the public sector play a role uh, in both regulating private behavior and in subsidizing uh, poor people. I mean, I don't think, you know, I think these extreme income disparities have to be somewhat uh, remedied by uh, providing uh, resources so that people can live a decent life. And and I think that, that you know, it's a question of balance. I mean, again, in, in this city, we have 400,000 people in New York City living in public housing. Uh, but the federal government has been disinvesting from that uh, since Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, and the result is we have 60,000 homeless people in the city of New York. So that's unacceptable in a, in a city or a country that's this rich. So there needs to be uh, some intervention uh, and some assistance. And I think that that's uh, something that government has to play a role in. You want to do it without it becoming... Uh, you know, uh, you know, we, we don't want to turn back to the, you know, the days of communism and state and blocks of housing like you saw in, in the old Soviet Union in Eastern Europe. I mean, that's that's completely awful. But there has to be uh, a way to uh, to help people where you don't create these uh, monstrosities. And and I think it's it's definitely doable. But the idea that government has no role to play uh, is silly. Uh, all of the economic development that we've seen in the world has involved uh, partnerships between uh, the government playing a role, particularly in infrastructure, and the private sector playing a role in creating uh, incentives for private uh, wealth and for behavior. And I think that's what you have to have. So in many ways, what you're saying, it is very much dependent on, 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 you know, the government. Yeah, I I think you have to have uh, the government playing a role. Now, in in a country like like the U.S., uh, we have a federal decentralized system. So, you know, California, for example, has is moving much faster toward renewable energy than, say, uh, Mississippi is. Uh, 
But interestingly enough, Texas is the home of wind energy in America because uh, they have so much of it. So, you know, you're going to, and, and then you go to a country like China or, or France, which is highly centralized, where uh, it's very, it's not part of the tradition to have uh, a lot of local authority. So each country has to do it a little bit differently uh, based on their own traditions. Yes, yes. Now, clearly, cities are, they, they do very well. They're great at generating wealth. <laughs> um, and I, I've seen some research which suggests that also inequality, you know, as cities grow, they become more unequal. Is that something that would concern you? Yeah, I mean, I think inequality is a big issue. Uh, you know, the, so the question is, can you create... Uh, collective resources that are available to everybody that help people, uh, you know, uh, move out of poverty. So if you live in Los Angeles uh, in, the, in the U.S., you need to get a car, own a car to get to work. If you live in New York City, all you have to do is get on the subway. Uh, and so the capital costs are different. Um, if, uh, you know, if you don't, I mean, it's interesting. If you if you need to uh, apply, if you want to apply for a job these days, you need access to the internet. And so, one of the things that New York has been doing is putting up uh, kiosks with free internet. And uh, there's much more publicly available, and, and libraries, and much more publicly available access uh, than there was before. We need to do more of those kinds of things. But more than that, people need to be educated uh, in how to be a productive worker in an increasingly technological world. Uh, it's just the skills that are needed, the knowledge that's needed to participate uh, is high and yes. is growing. Yes. Uh, yes. And yes. some of these technologies are hard to work, like Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And do you have thoughts on, on, on scale of cities? Because cities get bigger and there, there are diseconomies, aren't there? They're at a certain size, you know, and there's, there's a lot yes. of talk, I think there's a big feature in the New York Times about lo the local revolution, but, you know, bringing things back to, and Kirkpatrick Sale talks about scale, you know, um, and the, the small is beautiful, but, you know, there, there are the, the really important uh, factors in terms of, you know, quality of life and, and right. things that are associated with cities. Have you thought about that and explored that a little bit? What, what, the, what, yeah. what the right kind of scale is or how things change as you grow? People live in their neighborhoods under any circumstances, and the real question is then, uh, do those neighborhoods have identity, or is the whole place uh, a homogeneous set of you know apartment blocks that all look the same, or are there distinctions from section to section because of geography and because of history and, and because of the preferences of people living there? So you want to maintain that. Uh, obviously, you can end up with a city that's so large that you can't get out of the city to get to the countryside. And that's one of the problems with the mega cities. Uh, yes. The city I live in, you can travel an hour from where I'm sitting now and be in the mountains, at the beach, or uh, in the in farmland. Um, and you know, so density doesn't uh, doesn't work against that. It's just a question of you know how large and for how long. Uh, these cities uh, go on for. Unfortunately, I think that the the growth of human population uh, is peaking and will peak in this century. And part of that is is the demographic transition that's brought about by this economic development. 
It's a fairly simple thing. Uh, when we were rurally based, when most people lived in the country, uh, and many people worked in agriculture, uh, in fact, most people did, uh, children were an economic asset. They were, they worked the fields, they were your social security, and so, and of course, as many died as they were before they became adults, so you tried to have as many as you could. Uh, in urban life, uh, children are an economic liability. And so we see in the developed world, uh, we're not replacing ourselves anymore. If it wasn't for immigration, uh, Europe and the United States would be shrinking in population. Japan, which rejects immigration, is shrinking in population. And so uh, once we get to a certain level of economic development worldwide, uh, we're going to peak probably somewhere between 9 and 10 billion. And so this sort of endless growth uh, will end. And then the question is, how do we... Uh, continue to have prosperity uh, in a more steady state uh, economic life. And that's going to be an interesting transition uh, as we move into uh, sort of what I would call true sustainability, which will happen once we get to this level of economic development. Yes, there's quite a lot of momentum in, in post-growth and degrowth areas trying to think about, you know, how that would, what that would look like. Um, what's next for you? Finish this book. You're still researching, exploring cities. What, what's on your uh, agenda? Well, what I'm looking at now is I'm actually starting a research project with colleagues here on what has made organizations fail and what has made them succeed in bringing sustainability into routine management. I mean, one of the uh, issues that I've been most interested in is uh, how do we make this transition? I was thinking about it geographically with cities, but I'm also thinking about it organizationally. Uh, some organizations uh, have absorbed issues like energy efficiency and water efficiency and renewable energy and club systems uh, into their routine operation, and some have not. And I'm interested in why it's happening in some organizations and what makes that innovation take hold in, in other organizations, because I think that's really the sort of ground-level issue uh, for sustainability. I actually believe that what, what I call the physical dimensions of, of sustainability, which is energy, water, material, environmental impact, uh, should be part of what a manager does the same way they think about finance and marketing and strategy and human resources. Uh, you know, we keep adding elements to what a manager has to understand. And I think sustainability is now uh, the, the next frontier, just as globalization was the frontier at the end of the 20th century. So I want to see, learn more about what makes those processes work. And that's really what I'm focused on now. I think that's a, a full agenda that'll keep you busy and uh, uh, important, <laughs> important work. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to, to, to talk about this, the, the research you've done and your thoughts on the sustainable city. And I, I wish you the very best of success in the future. And thank you for having me. Same to you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.